Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. How does an island as small as that ever win ratio in history of like close to 80%? For whatever reason, intrinsically, they are good decision makers on the field. There was a time when these guys were blooming arrogant. They used to say, no dickheads will be allowed to be in this squad. Their philosophy is, you do what you can get away with. Five years old when my dad took me to Blackheath Rugby Club in London. Um, I remember we went one Boxing Day afternoon, and uh, Blackheath, who in those days were the club of England, um, used to play a traditional match, the Racing Club de France. And <laughs> the colour of these guys' jerseys and the, the spectacle and the, the rugby they played in those days, the Racing Club, it was a, a fantastic introduction to the sport. When you say the kind of rugby they played, just give us an idea what, what do you mean by the kind of rugby? Different to the today's game? Yeah, free-flowing, uh, looking for space, not for the biggest guy to crash into, yeah. making the ball do the work, all these old attributes that uh, many cases we don't see much now. I wish we saw them these days, don't you? A little bit. <laughs> Tell us about the jersey. So it was a it was a four year project, but intensely over two years. And um, why write a book about the All Blacks? I mean, are you going to sell lots of copies and make yourself a million millions of dollars in, in money here, or what where was the passion for this? Oh, the passion for it really was that I've been intrigued by them for years. I first went there in nineteen seventy five. Um, I've always been intrigued by the, the 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 respect they have for the game, the way the game is just part of their psyche, their DNA. Mm. Um, and I thought that, that what they've done in recent years, not just in winning two World Cups, but in the way they've played the sport and where they've taken it to was fascinating. And I thought, look, uh, if we're going to do a book about rugby somewhere, let's go to the best. Mm. Um, wasn't easy. I first approached... New Zealand CEO in, um, I think it was during 2015 Rugby World Cup. And he's the Steve Chew said to me, well, we get about half a dozen requests uh, every week for this. Why would we say yes to you? And I said, listen, somebody should do this book. And whoever does it should be a non-New Zealand journalist. Mm. If you don't want to employ me or get me to do it, get a South African or get a Welshman, an Irishman, because all of us will come unencumbered, no yeah. baggage. And it would be the same, I said to him, it would be the same if England would do it. I would never volunteer to write such a book on England rugby. You should get somebody from Cape Town, a writer here to do yeah. it. They'll, they'll 
produce completely different perspective. Anyway, they they and Bernard, uh, never heard anything for about six months. Then they came back and said yes, and what what does that mean? What do we have to do? And I suggested a few things. Then they came back and said no, we don't think we'll do it after all. I said, look, I'm not a quitter. I didn't think you guys were. So I think they were playing Wales in the Test Series at the time. And I said, what I suggest is you finish this series, get that out of the way, sit down and have another think. And they came back eventually and said yes. What was your specific pitch? What was it? Yeah. I just wanted to do a book that went inside the All Blacks that explored the whole culture and the whole background to this to this rugby team. It's not a book that uh, in any sense will tell you who scored a famous try in a famous World Cup final and who kicked a winning goal because all that's been done millions of times. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do was go into the country of New Zealand, find the people and see how they'd link that to the guys who wear this, this famous black jersey. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why were they why were they hesitant to do yeah. it? I always think that teams, are they too scared to give away their secrets? Or why are they hesitancy to do something like this? Oh, I think, look, I think that traditionally most rugby unions are the same. I mean, I don't think personally the English rugby union would allow somebody to do a book like this. I think, frankly, it's a comment on the maturity of the New Zealand rugby union these days that they did say yes. Um, I remember Steve Chew said we'd like to read it before it goes to publication. I didn't have a problem with that because what I wanted to avoid at all costs was stupid mistakes that were totally avoidable. Yeah. That somebody could have, would have said afterwards, if you'd only let us read it, we'd have picked that up. You could have changed it. So mm-hmm. I thought they might start saying, oh, we can't have this. We can't say that. You can't put it like this. They read it. Steve Chew said to me, I've never read a book in my life that I've agreed with 100%. And I don't expect this to be the first. And he was right. But they changed nothing. nothing so it's not a fan book? No, it's not a fan book yeah. at all. And I set out very firmly down that path. You can't write a hagiography. People will fall asleep. Yeah. I'm pretty critical about them and certain elements of them in that book. I think at times the violence has been overt. They've uh, taken it too far. They've become obsessed with the game at times to the detriment of their behaviour on the field. Mm. And I've said all this, so it's certainly not a fan's view. Mm. Ross, I mean, you, you come from a very much a scientific background in this sort of thing. We've been talking a little bit before we started the podcast about the, the role of the different people in the team. So your book goes into the history of New Zealand. You had a lot of the Europeans coming from all the way from Europe to New Zealand, which is in a, probably a year's trip on a boat, and they were hard men. So the people that arrived in New Zealand were tough guys. You mixed them with a, with a whole bunch of Polynesians who are physiologically at another level. And Ross, I mean, you, you know this background very well. You're involved in really big space. How much of an advantage is that, first of all, from the European settlers who are obviously hard men, and then the, the benefit of having the Polynesians to, to draw on as well? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I've never seen anyone, I hate to be the scientist saying, oh, I need data, but because sometimes you can actually trust your eyes and you see New Zealand play and I've got players who seem explosive and who seem capable of doing things our players don't, but I don't know that that's physiology as much as it is tactical. Mm-hmm. I mean, we might have players with the capability of doing that, we just don't use them, use them as well as we might. Mm-hmm. England have got a back three right now that I think are as explosive and as exciting as any teams in the world. Mm. In New Zealand, if they put them in black jerseys, they'd be indistinguishable from the people currently in black jerseys, in my opinion. Mm. So I don't know, I don't know what contribution the 
specific genetics of New Zealanders and Islanders and the Pacific Islanders specifically makes to that. But until I know been, you like, don't like conjecture too much, Tom, but I'm going to put you on the spot slightly. We talk a lot about the Kenyans in athletics. Yeah. They have all these advantages, physiological advantages, living at altitude, all those sort of things. That, that is clear in athletics as an advantage. Are you saying in rugby terms, New Zealand terms, those physiological differences not necessarily scientifically proven? You, you yeah, can't say it's because of that. Yeah, and my feeling is it probably doesn't explain why they're as dominant as they are. I think overrepresentation fascinates me. Mm-hmm. When you have disproportionately high numbers of one small group doing well, and that's that's the case. I mean, how many people in New Zealand? Three four, and a half, four million? Four point eight million. Yeah. How does an island as small as that have a win ratio in history of like close to 80%? And in the last 15 years, it's probably closer to 90, right? Mm. That's unparalleled in international sport. Mm. You can probably find it in some low-key, lower-tier representative level. But as a global sport... Yeah, there's a women's basketball team that's lost like three matches in 30 years. But <laughs> that, that's not maybe as comparable... The point is it's that next book this, is, so you know. the Connecticut Huskies, look at that, 40. They went one season winning 40 in a row. It's never been done in <laughs> rugby. But um, so when we talk about overrepresentation, we think about West African slash Jamaican sprinters, East African long distance runners, New Zealand rugby. These, are, these for me are fascinating little microcosms of something. And I'm not sure that New Zealand rugby is as much a physiological phenomenon as, say, Kenyan running is. Mm. Mm. It's, yeah. n- it's never one or the other. So yeah. Kenyan running is not just physiological. But mm. my perception as an outsider, and I'm much more an outsider than Peter, who's gone in there and dived in, mm. is that New Zealand rugby owes its success in part maybe to that physiology. But I think there's much more to it from a 10 generations worth of cultural, intellectual growth and maturity and so on. My, I've always thought New Zealand's got the highest rugby IQ of any country in the world by a lot. Everyone there just understands the sport so much better than most people in other countries. 100% right, 100%. And that is a key factor. It's the sum of the parts, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't say this uh, physiological factor is sort of 75%. There are many, many factors. I think one of them is is the fact that, for whatever reason, intrinsically, they are good decision-makers on the field. Now, that's a generalisation, of course, but you look at recent years of the All Blacks, the big games they've won, you've seen players making crucial decisions under pressure and making them most of the time successfully. And I think that puts them apart Mm. from most other countries. I mean, I go back to England and this extraordinary match they had a year or so ago at Twickenham when they played Italy. And Brendan Fenter, the the great South African um, rugby brain, devised this brilliant idea of if you don't contest the ruts, you're not offside, so you can stand right by the English outside half when he gets the ball and just wrap him around. He can't go anywhere. And the English players didn't have a clue what to do about it. They said to Roman Poit, the French referee, what are you going to do? And Poit came out with this marvellous, memorable yeah. retort. I am the referee, not the coach. <laughs> yeah. And they, England never solved it until they went back into the dressing room at halftime and asked Eddie Jones what to do. Yeah. That would never, ever have happened in a New Zealand team. What would, what would New Zealand have done? New Zealand would have gathered, if it were McCaw's captain or someone, would have gathered the players around and said, right, plan B, you go there, I'm going here, you come down here, 
sorted and they'd have sourced it themselves because, as Russ says, they have this this brain and this this long developed over generations knowledge, intimate knowledge of the game. I agree, they understand the game better yeah, than anybody else. That's institutional wisdom. That's mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing everyone has access to, but hardly anyone ever gets because they don't listen to what happened before. Um, and so this is a corporate thing as well. Companies make the same mistake. You have the movement on of your executive, your CEO leaves or your lead designer leaves and everything goes with them. And that's, yeah. that's what we do. So we won a World Cup in 2007. The coaching staff move on. No one retained any of the experiences that led to that. And we basically wouldn't go back to square one, but we, mm. we don't... Basically starting again. Yeah, so your growth curve looks like a mountain range, up mm. and down, up and down. Whereas when you actually listen and retain knowledge, your growth curve just keeps going up. Yeah. So you both, from what I'm hearing from both of you, you both agree that it's not this massive physiological... Um, difference that they have with the rest of the teams because you could t- take those players and put them in an England structure or a South African structure or even a Japanese structure and it wouldn't guarantee success just because of their the fact that they might have bigger thigh muscles than... Yeah, and the converse, the, the converse is, I think, one of the reasons that the team closest to New Zealand historically was always South Africa. Yeah. And, I mean, we were looking at the stats. New Zealand's got a better win than loss ratio against every country. Mm. Against South Africa, it's 59%. But Peter might know this. In the last 15 years, it might be 85-15. I mean, since, yeah. since, since about 2004-05, South Africa can... That's why we celebrate so much when we meet them. Because mm. it hardly ever happens anymore. It used to happen quite a lot. It, in fact, it was probably 50-50 until about 20 years ago. Mm. And one of the reasons for that was that we could match them physically. Mm. You know, you put, you put 10 big... Fired up, hungry, ready to kill <laughs> six foot six, even at it with Dwayne from Ellen types on the field. There's no one in the world more physically capable than we are. Mm. But we didn't, we didn't keep pace with them tactically, technically, intellectually, emotionally, and the consequence is we've fallen well behind now. So the question, now, as a as a complete layman looking at this conversation, is that there's a lot of debate about size versus speed and agility. You know, I'm a I'm a massive fan of the running game. Um, but when you see that these rules about how Springboard rugby players have to be able to bench press a certain amount of weight, they have to be a certain size, even if they're centers and wings. Um, it, it, are we moving always closer to that size thing in rugby, or are we moving closer to a point where you can still be competitive and lighter and more agile? Well, ask, ask Peter. I mean, you spend time in New Zealand. New Ze- do they de-emphasize size during development? I suspect they do. Yeah. They, they have weight categories, for instance, because they yeah. recognize that we don't, we don't just want hulking behemoths smashing into other players. Well, they're very worried for a start about losing players because a lot of women were so appalled by some of the injuries these, these kids were getting that yeah. they were saying, you're not playing rugby anymore, you can play soccer. Mm-hmm. And for, in the 80s particularly, when New Zealand's soccer team, I think, got to the World Cup finals, 86 perhaps, uh, there was quite a strong movement and rugby was alarmed in New Zealand and they were really going to be on the back foot. But they've, as you say, they've, they've found a way. Um, you go to watch a junior club and there'll be guys at 100 kilos bashing the living daylights out of each other, but guys of the same age will be down playing in the 70 kilos max mm. range, which I think is a lot of sense. To me, the physicality of the game is the biggest challenge that it is facing now and in the future. Mm. Because if it doesn't get it right, we're going to go, as you said, down the American football path 
billion dollar lawsuits, mm. and that will be a nightmare. And you think that would be, I mean, if they don't get that right, it's kind of almost the end of the game from a growth perspective. Well, it's very, diff- it's very difficult because in my book, there isn't a game in the world worth playing if you're going to end up with dementia when you're 50 because of it. Mm. Um, increasing the evidence seems to suggest that no matter whether you wear a head guard or not, uh, even if you wear a helmet, as they do in American football, the brain is being smashed and reverberating around, as in a yeah. car crash. Yeah. So I don't think that is a solution. Yeah. But I think the problem rugby's facing is that now the gene is out of the bottle, and let's face it, the game is unrecognisable from when you go back to 60s and 70s. I and mean, look at the space on the field in those days. Look at the fitness levels today yeah. compared. The skills of players today are far superior, particularly forwards. So the gene is out of the bottle. How do you kind of squash it back into a manageable size? Yeah. Not easy. Well, that's a debate we're going to get into in a, in a further podcast around that, and it is an interesting point. So if physicality is questionable... Um, the book that you write focuses very much on the culture of, of rugby in New Zealand, about the sanctity of that black all black jersey, about how young guys at six, seven, eight years of age, that's their goal. Just talk us through what you find out through this. How is it different from, say, Springrock rugby versus English rugby in terms of that sort of ethos and passion for the jersey? Well, in, a, in, in one sentence, I'd say, as, as I came to the conclusion and wrote in the book, winning in New Zealand is not an expectation, it's an obligation. <laughs> because of all the pressures of all the people around you, your parents, your schoolmates, the people down the road, the neighbours, everybody, they demand victory. They don't just go and say, as they might in England at a junior level, well, you know, enjoy the game this afternoon, go and play well and enjoy the game. Yeah. New Zealand, they always had this rider, make sure you win. And that is a massive factor. in Even at junior level? Yeah, even at junior level. Not as far, not when they first start the game. As Jerome Carno said to me, initially when you're a kid and you start playing the game, nobody's interested in results, five, mm. six, seven-year-olds. All they're watching, the coaches, is can you do the basics? Mm. I don't mean once. Can you throw a pass right in front of a guy to run onto a pace 15, 20 times out of 20? That's what they're looking for, the basics. But once they move past that and they figure you have mastered the basics, then they start to say, right, you are expected to win. It is an obligation. Do they enjoy the game? They do. The Players, kids. I mean, and the coaches. Yeah, I believe... But once they get to baby black, under 20 level upwards, do they still enjoy it? I believe they do. I mean, I went and spent quite a bit of time with the Crusaders and to watch them training and to listen to Scott Robertson, who is, a, for me, going to be the coming coach in world rugby. Yeah, um, I mean, if England were really smart and they're looking to replace Jones, I'd go and throw a bucket load of money at Scott Robertson, the person they can say. He could be our coach for the next 10 years. Mm. Like Gatlin has been for Wales. You're not looking at a sort of, if you're sensible, you're not looking at a four-year cycle, as you alluded to earlier, about the spring box, and then change everything and bring somebody else in with all the attendant difficulties that process entails. But if you've got a guy signed up and you say, I believe you're the best coach in the world already, or certainly will be in the coming years, we would like a 10-year deal, blah, blah, blah. And what could he achieve with uh, England in that time? can only imagine. Well, digressing slightly, what, what makes a guy like him, Robertson, uh, uh, play that he was, well, why is he a great coach? I mean, uh, you know, I always think coaches are kind of, they have their season and then next season they're with a different team and it's about the culture of the team they're with. 
what makes it that he as a standout coach that you're talking about England basically throwing money at him to be there? Why? I think he's very strong in the culture of the game. Certainly at uh, Christchurch, that is the case. Um, we go back to an original point we mentioned a few minutes ago. Intrinsically, they understand the game. And that doesn't just mean on the field. It's understanding how to manage people, how to manage players, how to choose between you two guys. And I bollock you, I give you a rollicking today, I put my arm around your shoulder. They are very, very good at that, I've, I surmise, and I've seen it, evidence of it. Players who are a bit down, they know how to handle these, these contrasting emotions, and I think they're very good for that. Again, it's, it's not the only reason, there are plenty of reasons, but their knowledge of the game is endless. Yeah, the, the, so the Crusaders were going back 10, 15 years, almost the the flagship club barometer of what the All Blacks had, the same attitudes towards culture and so forth. And he was a player for them. Mm. And so I think he really understands it very well and yeah. get the impression that he's an extremely creative guy, unbelievably charismatic. He break dances when they win Super Rugby <laughs> on the field and the players all form a circle around him and cherry him on and so on. So he's that kind of personality. You know, you're not... Like, you're not going to see Russell Erasmus breakdancing if we <laughs> win the World Cup, right? So he's a very, he seems to me to be very creative. He seems to me to know what he doesn't know, and therefore he has good people around him to compliment him, and then he seems like just a very switched-on, emotionally intelligent man also. I, somebody told me a, a very interesting story from not long ago down there involving Ronan Agar, who, of course, is now assistant coach down there. And he said that... Uh, Apparently, O'Gara, uh, they were going to play this super rugby match and the Crusaders had a lot of players missing, senior guys. And Scott announced the team he wanted to pick and O'Gara said, mate, what are you doing? You've got three guys in that crucial 10, 12, 13 role. The oldest is about 19. He said, we're playing the Hurricanes at Wellington this weekend. You can't expect those kids to come in and do what... Crotty, uh, Goodhue and the other guys do every week. And Robertson turned on him and he said, mate, there's no reason on earth why they won't. I expect them to. I demand they do. And they will furthermore. And apparently the way the game turned out, those guys were crucial in the Crusaders winning. But Robertson never had any doubt whatsoever because, from what he told me, a lot of the work they do is from 12 up through the levels. So when these guys are there, assuming they can do the basics consistently... They're good enough to go in, and Robertson will say, well, I haven't got any doubts about putting you in. So, so that's where so I, I worked for the Springbok Sevens for a couple of years, and we won the World Series in 2009. And before that, New Zealand had gone, I mean, I'm probably overestimating, but they, they must have gone 30-odd matches without a loss. Nine sevens, that's ridiculous. That's mm. six, seven tournaments, no defeats. And one of the things that stood out to me was when they got an injury, no matter who it was to, whether it was to the star player or the seventh guy or substitute, the guy coming in would just fill the spot and you would hardly notice the difference. Whereas when we got an injury, we, we had to redesign our tactical approach because the new guy was so different to the person he was replacing that had we tried to play the same way, it would have been a disaster. And I remember saying to the coach, who was Paul True, it's crazy, they just swap like for like and it just works. Mm. Whereas we can't make like for like changes because we don't have the depth of quality that they do and that's the that's the product of the system that just teaches every player the same set of skills from the ages of 12 to 20 
So they all are on the same wavelength. Whereas with our guys, you're hoping that this kid who you're picking had good basics, whereas that kid didn't, whereas this kid might have, and it's a bit of a lottery. They know. Well, that's it, Peter. I mean, you've obviously experienced that in your book. Yeah, no, you're dead right. It's exactly that. Um, and I've seen that all over the world, too. I mean, England lose a key player. Suddenly, the, the yeah. whole structure has to change. Well, you never see that with New Zealand. Never. Exactly. Never. But are you not then just producing a whole bunch of clones? How do they keep developing within the game if they're producing very similar players? No, because you, it's, it's, like, it's like if you're an architect, right? Mm. And you're building unbelievably distinctive buildings but they all have a foundation in common. Because if you built that amazing building on the seafront, like it's collapsing, and that's the difference. So foundationally, I think they're all the same. Whereas then what they have is that in, in Aaron Smith, for example, their, their first choice scrum off, they have a subtly different player to TJ Perinara, who tends to come off the bench. But they can both pass, run, and they're quick, and they're agile, and they don't miss tackles. But they add little nuances here and there that make them distinctive. So... They're, they're the same where they need to be, and then they're different where it helps to be. And another factor, I think, is the, the way that they constantly challenge their players. Conrad Smith was very helpful to me in this book. We spent a lot of time together, and he, he read it and gave me a lot of good advice. And he said to me, I'll never forget the way, when you won 90 caps, there's somebody coming up to you after a game saying, mate, have you thought about this? Why did you do that? Because we reckon you could have done this and that. And I don't believe, again, that if you went to the English dressing room, you'd find that to the same degree. They're constantly trying to put the creative, positive element into these players' minds. So they're, they're looking at all possibilities. You talked a little bit in your book about, I mean, you said it just a few moments ago, about the basics. They grow up learning the basics. But you say in the book those basics are still reinforced right to the top level of the game, even though they kind of, they've moved to a much more advanced level because when the pressure hits basics become sort of just second nature for them and that doesn't seem to happen across many of the teams globally. Well it's incredible when you when you watch international rugby and, and after you've been you don't even have to go and watch the All Blacks train which I did admittedly but you go and watch an international game how many times will you see an international player who these days is earning a bucket load of money um, throw a pass behind the uh, support colleague's ear or behind his body or just be behind so that he's got to check, stop, catch the ball and then try and start running again. That never, ever happens hardly yeah. in the New Zealand camp. When you watch them training, they're doing these basics. They're still practising basics. Mm. They're not sort of... Dan Carter said to me, it's funny... People go all around the world thinking there's going to be some magical key they're going to find that'll unlock the box that'll tell them everything about New Zealand rugby. He said it's not like that mm. because what we're doing, if there is a number one secret, and he said there's, there's several, but number one is we just keep practicing the basics. So we never stop working on throwing that pass in the optimum position for somebody to break a tackle or to run. Um, that is crucial. Well, you've watched a lot of games in your life. I mean, is that, a, is that a critical difference between the All Blacks and the rest of the world? Yes, I believe it is. I, I think it it's, has been the case for many years, and I think it's probably more accentuated now, um, particularly in a faster game. Because if you, if you get an opportunity in the game today, you need to take it, as a lot of countries are finding. They can bang away on the opposition line, but if they get a chance, there is space, and they don't take it because of a badly timed pass, a misdirected kick or something, they could be down the other end in, in a trice. 
conceding a score themselves. So you've got to be ruthless in execution. Yeah. And the All Blacks are. Ross? Early on you said, um, which I found interesting, and then we sort of deviated from to an equally interesting thing. But the point to come back to is winning is an obligation, yet they seem to enjoy it. If winning was an obligation in South Africa, we would get progressively more and more and more conservative. So how, how do they find a balance between playing with this obligation to win and actually also playing adventurous rugby? Because if you watch the Six Nations now, Wales won that tournament scoring fewer tries than anyone other than Italy. And they were smart in attack, but they weren't explosive and exciting. New Zealand seemed to me to still be the team that most neutrals would want to watch. Yet they're not suffocated by this pressure. No, they're not. And it's a very good point. Um, I think the reason is they embrace the challenge. They don't fear this challenge of, of having to live up to the expectations, the obligations, as I put it. They embrace it. They welcome it. And they've been coached in this. I mean, some of the coaching is when, when you watch them uh, train, they're put under se severe pressure in many, many ways and, and aspects. But... They seem to relish it. There's nobody sort of looking as though, God, I wish I were out of here. They're looking to get their hands on the ball. They love the ball in their hands. And I think the point you make about Wales is right. I mean, Wales's defence lately under Sean Edwards is so professional, organised and solid that I'm beginning to wonder whether any team is going to knock them over at the World Cup. Because on a given day, if they defend like that, they're going to be very difficult to stop, including New Zealand. So, you know, the question comes, do you want to watch rugby based on defence or do you want to watch creativity in the game and a flow to the game? I think super rugby is um, a different species, a different animal. You, as Steve Hansen said, you can't play super rugby at test level. It just doesn't work like that. But there's no doubt that the skills they have acquired to play Super Rugby and the, the way they're used to the pace of the game and finding space have benefited them in Test Rugby. Still to come. There was a time when these guys were blooming arrogant, think other times they were overtly physical. They used to say no dickheads will be allowed to be in this squad. Their philosophy is you do what you can get away from. Anybody in the world who comes within the street of the way they play. Talking to Peter Bills, the author of The Jersey, all about the old decks, along with uh, Professor Ross Tucker. One of the things you talk about is the humbleness of the players. And I know lots of media guys who deal with the, 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 the international rugby teams talk about how despite their incredible success, the players themselves are very humble in, in everything that they deal with, not only the media, but in their general dealings with people around them. Um, was that your experience of them? Yeah, it was, and it was something I was, I was quite surprised by. Um, I mean, going back to what you said originally about this isn't the fans sort of book, I can remember going to Dublin in 1991 for the World Cup semi-final. I think it was the semi-final when New Zealand played Australia. David Campisi destroyed them. And I walked down on the Thursday afternoon down um, to the hotel to be greeted by the side of New Zealand rugby players trying to throw a bed out of the hotel window. And when I was put on the same floor as them, unfortunately, and started trying to work, you couldn't work because of the noise they were making. Inconsist inconsiderate arrogant they thought they were going to turn up and wipe the floor with the Aussies and of course no one was surprised more when they lost so there was a time when these guys were blooming arrogant I can tell you and I think other times they were overtly physical to the extent of ending players careers 
with outrageous um, physical in, uh, incidents. The one, of course, comes to mind is uh, Colin Meads ending Ken Catchpole's career in Sydney, I think, in the 60s, when he tore his groin muscle, he tore one leg to get him out of a ruck and just ripped all his groin muscles. They came off the bone, it was so bad. And a year later, Catchpole was still limping. So there were plenty of aspects that I was determined were going to go in the book, and I thought, okay, we'll keep an open mind on whether they're humble now. I can tell you they're a different set of people now in that respect. Those stories are still in the book. Yeah, yeah, they are, definitely. Um, but when you go and talk to them now, you talk to people like Bowden Barrett, you would not find a nicer guy mm. in, in world sport, any sport. They are humble, and I think a lot of it came from this this mentality that was developed in the Graham Henry Hansen era, that you do you behave properly and you do certain things. You put a lot back because you're only going to wear the jersey for a while. But while you're there, you try to make it better. Jerome Kino, I can tell you, doesn't think he has made the jersey better than the guy who took than, than from those he took over from. Kaino's been a fantastic rugby player for New Zealand, but those are the intimidating standards they set themselves. So, sorry, when he says he doesn't think he's made the jersey better, does he feel he's, he's let himself down in the no, jersey? No, I, I don't. Is he just, are you saying rather that he actually feels that he's just part of legacy and history? He doesn't have a superiority attitude. I think, it, I think it's that, yeah. I mean, I th- he, his view is that probably that he's not been a standout like a Richie McCaw or a Dan Carter, if you like, a guy who has really taken it to the next level. Yeah, Yeah, he's played fantastically well for the All Blacks, kind of great forward, fearsome forward, but maybe it's an example of of those lofty standards they they seek. And they are fallible. I mean, we were talking before the podcast of the incident in 2004, um, playing against South Africa, and uh, Ross, you had a little bit of information about what happened post that incident which I is love a, it. a bit of a blight on the all black copybook. I love it when there's a research paper for me, Mike. <laughs> there's a research paper. It was published in this journal called The Sports Psychologist in twenty fourteen and it was authored by a guy called Ken Hodge, whose name will mean little to anyone other than those who know him. Sorry, Ken Hodge. But it was co authored by Graham Henry and Wayne Smith, which makes it interesting because how often do two international caliber coaches publish a scientific paper? So that's that tells you a little bit about New Zealand's intellect in rugby. Anyway, this paper is called A Case Study of Excellence in Elite Sport, Motivational Climate in a World Champion Team. And it describes, in Henry's and Smith's own words, two turning points, one of which was this incident. They lost to South Africa by 40 points to 26 in uh, 2004. It was the final game of their Tri-Nations. They ended up coming third in the Tri-Nations, never good. And that night they went out on what, from all accounts, was an earth-shattering bender. To the point that apparently some of the South African players had to help them back into their rooms at the end of the evening. And the coaches were so appalled by this that they changed the leadership model in the team. And they structured what eventually became known as the dual management model, where they gave ownership back to the players. And they put the players in charge of planning the week deciding what the training sessions would look like. And the coaches, instead of becoming instructors, became facilitators. And that was, that was one of the key turning points that they themselves identified as being responsible for changing that culture and that climate. So even as recently as 2004, this was a team that would not have carried its flag with tremendous amount of dignity and pride. 
did you, I don't know, did you come across this particular, this particular story? Peter? Yeah, it's in the book. I wrote about it. I think yeah. the chapter's called Resurrection. Um, it was so bad that, that Wayne Smith, who was regarded as the doyen of New Zealand coaches, said when they got back to uh, Auckland, if this is what all black rugby's come to, I'm going to quit. I'm out of yeah. it. I, I can't stand it. They were utterly appalled. But Graham Henry said to me when I asked him about this, he said that was what the All Blacks were. He said they, they didn't grasp that this was now a professional area, that you couldn't behave like that anymore, and you had to move forward, he said. But it had to be drummed into them, and certain, as you say, changes were, were put in place, and changes of personnel helped achieve it as well. Yeah, so here's, here's a quote. This is literally Graham Henry's words. We locked ourselves away and said, look, we've got to solve this bloody thing. This is just a totally unacceptable situation. That's when we got really serious about leadership in the team and so forth. That was the most important meeting, I think, that we ever had in the eight years we coached the team. That was the start of changing the environment, changing the culture, developing the leadership group, and them expressing themselves. So that was a, that was a conscious decision that they made. And I mean, I can tell you, that's not the case in sevens. Not to speak out of turn, but the, the culture of the New Zealand sevens team and what you see about the 15s teams are worlds apart. And it's because... Very specific people took that thing and said, this is not acceptable. How do we want it to look? Like this. And then they changed the situation. So that was that was key. And then one of the people, I think it was there, uh, give me one moment. I want to tell you exactly who came up with it. Uh, someone they describe as the campaign manager came up with a saying, better people make better All Blacks. In other words, they wanted to focus on good people. And then they'd be good All Blacks. And that became kind of the catchphrase, which informally became known as, and maybe people heard this, the no dickheads policy. They used to say, no dickheads will be allowed to be in this squad because you have to be a good person before you wear that jersey. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you think about schoolboy rugby here in South Africa, it's all about how good you are. It's not necessarily about what a nice bloke you yeah. are. I mean, is, is that still very prevalent in New Zealand rugby now, that kind of... No dickhead policy. Yes, it is. It's uh, rigidly enforced as well. I mean, uh, that's not to say that complete idiots could get into the all-black side um, just because they're nice guys and they can't blow rugby. Of course, you've got to do both. But people like Hansen do not take uh, these people uh, lightly. And if they think they're not going to get a guy's head through the dressing room door, he ain't going to be in the team. Quite so, simple. So, so there are players, potentially, who are good enough to play... Yes, players, but are not playing because they're. <laughs> there, there's, there are a few actually. There are a few. There are a few. There are a few who've got. You know any behavioural concerns? <laughs> not personally, and they're much bigger than I am. So. Oh, well, I'll <laughs> I, I, I do though because some of them, when you look at Super Rugby stats, players beaten, meters made, tackles made, tackles missed among the lowest. Mm. Some of the players with the best stats don't get a look in at the All Blacks, and you say, well, why might that be? And the answer is one is because maybe he's in the queue behind Kieran Reid mm. or someone who's an absolute giant of the all-black jersey. But the other reason is that he hasn't yet shown that they have the emotional maturity and the character, basically, to, to wear that jersey. Maybe Peter can talk about specifics. I, I I'll be honest, I don't know specifically. It would be speculating a little bit. All this said, there have been a handful of occasions in the last six or seven years when fairly high-profile All Blacks have fallen foul of their uh, ego-slash-reputation-slash-opportunities. 
Uh, Aaron Smith in the bathroom cubicle was one. Israel Dagg is another player who's had major off-field problems and is in and out of the teams and so forth. So we're not saying that these guys are whiter than snow, mm, no. but they, they prioritize character in, in a way that, like literally, they did talk about as a turning point for themselves. Steve, Steve Hansen was interesting on this topic, so I said to him about this. and I talked to Aaron Smith at length, and he, he, he was full of remorse at the way that his behavior had cost him leading the Harker. He said, I, I had to stand down and give it away because I knew it wasn't compatible with those, uh, with the values that I'd shown or lack of them in what happened. But st- I said to Steve Hansen, how do you handle this? And he said, look, it's not a problem if the guy screws up because everybody in the world screws up over something, no matter who it is, where it is or what it is. We all make mistakes. He said the key factor is whether these guys are prepared to be re, in, re, uh, reintegrated and whether they're prepared to confront the things that drove them down that path so they don't go that way again. He said, if we do that, he said, we, it's a win. It's fine. But he said, the people who won't look at the reality, you're not going to waste time on them because they're not going to. Mm. I think you talked a little bit in your book about Richard McCorvin saying that when the change rooms are messy, sometimes he would go back and clean up the change rooms. I think it was Richard McCorvin. That's the kind of mentality that the greatest player was the guy that would still happily pick up the rubbish off the floor to make sure they left the change room in good shape. Yeah, so I mean, the culture. it's the culture. It's part of their values. They believe it's essential. Um, I don't think it does much harm. It certainly kept uh, people like McCaw humble. Um, I would say if the people I interviewed for the book, he would have been in the top two or three in terms of what he gave to the conversation, his honesty and his, his commitment. I know he didn't want to do the interview because he by then he'd moved on. He'd left rugby and he was flying uh, helicopters in Christchurch. And it took some persuasion because he doesn't do interviews now. But uh, when he did commit to it, he committed. And I think his, his values epitomised the All Blacks in the last 15, 20 years. Just on that, that's the clean the shed thing uh, that you're talking about. Well, the, the whole th- I think he might have used the words in his autobiography about clean the shed. So that was the attitude was the shed is New Zealand slang yeah. for the change room, right? Yeah. And so what happened there, and I'm just raising this because it's like it, it sometimes gets under my skin a bit, is people will see that and say, that's what we need. And then you have suddenly everyone else trying to imitate. If the All Blacks are cleaning the shed, then we must because it'll make us a little bit more like them. Of yeah. course, it doesn't change the result because that's a consequence of something else. And so that's a symptom of the culture. It's not the driver of the culture, right? So I just want to make the point that clean the shed is not necessary to win matches. And the culture that we've been talking about, which is undoubtedly what they've created, is not the cause of them winning. It's part of a bigger system that allows them to win. But, I mean, Japan posted at the Football World Cup last year a photograph of their change room when they'd been eliminated from the tournament with a little note saying thank you to the ground support staff and the change room was spotless. But they'd been beaten in the quarterfinals. So it's not enough that you yeah. just clean your change room. It's part of a good culture. Which, is, which should be obvious. But yeah. you'd be amazed at how many people latch on to those little... It's not a triviality because it's an important symptom of something else. But you'd be amazed how many people latch on to a symptom and think that they've got the cure for the... The problem, you know. I think one of the one of the interesting sometimes criticisms thrown at the All Blacks is they do play. We talk about how you know great players they are, and we talked about them cleaning the change rooms, and they, you know on the outside they look like really great guys so far in our discussion. But they do play very close to that 
that legal line a lot of the time. I think as, as, as supporters of you know, watch them play against the spring box, they're lying on the wrong side of the ruck and all that sort of thing, disrupting play. Um, do they accept that they play very close to that line as players or do they see it as just part of the game? I wouldn't accept they play very close to that line as players. I'd say they play over it most of the time, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, if you watch Richie McCaw in the 2011 Rugby World Cup final, um, I mean, there's just about every uh, offence, technical offence, in the book that's there. He's coming in from the side of rucks. He's not going through from the back. It, standing offside, their philosophy is you do what you can get away with. And they play referees like Yudi Menuhin used to play a violin. <laughs> they just make them sing. They are brilliant at it. They're masterminds at it. There isn't anybody in the world who comes within the street of the way they play referees. They have them hanging from their fingers. And it's clever because all this, the way the game is going these days, how many times are we seeing a refereeing decision, whenever it is, but particularly in the last 10, 5 minutes, that decides the outcome of a game? And so many times those decisions have gone New Zealand's way, whether it's to win a penalty whether it's to get a, a, a penalty in a position that clears pressure. It's, it, they do it brilliantly, and they have done for a long time. But they don't just play close to the line. They play way over it. Andy Hayden... Is the consequence of the professional era? I mean, is it... No, it's, it goes back before that, um, way before the professional era. Andy Hayden, in, in 1978, sort of people listening to this who... Can remember that far back um, when Wales played New Zealand and Wales were winning 13 12 in the last minute, had a line out, and two New Zealand players dived out of the line out without a hand being touched on them. The, re the English referee Roger Quittenden gave a penalty to New Zealand and they kicked the goal and won the match. Um, Andy Hayden, who was one of those players who dived out of, of the line, met Willie John McBride a few years later in the Bermuda Sevens. And Willie John said to him, when they were talking over a beer, he said, do you ever regret that, what you did that time? And Hayden, completely straight face, said, no, never, because we're taught to do whatever it takes to win a match. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, it's an interesting, I mean, it is an interesting debate because, you know, they are great. I mean, how, Ross, how, how much of a, it's a conjecture, I guess, in some ways, how much of a factor does that have in the game? If they're that clever at playing the referee, for want of a better term, is that the difference between them and the rest of the world, or is it much more than that? If it is, then it makes the rest of the world stupid because it's not like that's a competitive advantage that can't be matched. <laughs> if they can play over the line, why can't we? So why don't we? Well, I, I don't know. That's what I was about to ask Peter. Is not, in fact, none of what we've spoken about, really, other than the decades, generations worth of reinvestment of knowledge and that exponential growth in their rugby IQ is unavailable to the rest of the world. 
True. So why is it that they're the only people doing? I mean, the rest of the world could grip the situation and say we want to create a culture of better people make better Welshmen, better rugby players, better people make better island players. So it's not like they haven't tried. Mm. I guarantee you. In fact, I spent a few hours with Joe Schmidt the other day and their culture is very much in line with this. So that's why I'm saying it's not a, it's not a differentiator. And I don't even know that playing over the rules is a differentiator. Have we not had a Richie McCaw in South Africa? I don't know. I if think we haven't, they, yeah. then I blame the coaches. Yeah. I just think they do it so much better and they're much, much cleverer at it. There's no question if you're a halfback and you're in the referee's ear for 80 minutes, it's going to rebound on you. It's not clever. And you can't keep chirping away because it drives referees mad, and rightly so. But what they do is you watch them and you listen sometimes over the referee's mic. It's coming from all sorts of different angles. It's not just Richie McCaw, it's Conrad Smith, then it's Dan Carter, then it's Aaron Smith, then it's somebody else. And all this information is going into the referee's head. And maybe, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, but maybe subconsciously some of that sticks. And um, do you think it's planned? Yes, of course it is. 100%. It's, it's a part of their preparation for winning test matches. This doesn't happen accidentally. It's, it's pre-planned. They plan everything down to the last iota. So if you're fans of the opposition, you see that what makes, that's what makes it frustrating. You know, we're obviously Ross and I are based here in South Africa. We're Springbok fans um, as much as we, we want to be. And it's frustrating when a game is lost seemingly from that grey area that the All Blacks sometimes play, which is sometimes the difference between winning and losing. Um, for the Springboks, but as Ross has pointed out, maybe the Springboks should be playing a little bit closer to that line themselves. Well, I, I mean, if you follow that all-black uh, philosophy, yeah, I mean, they, they, they do what they do until the referee says you can't do it. They don't sort of think to themselves subconsciously, oh, no, I know I'll be offside if I go there. They will go there, mm. and if the referee blows his whistle, fine. But they're clever because, of course, the other thing is they know damn well no referee in the world is going to blow his whistle for 80 minutes because it'll destroy the game. Yeah. So inevitably, if you keep doing enough things, some of them, even if it's only 20 30%, you're going to get away with. Mm. But those 20 30% of times could give you a massive advantage. Yeah, again, uh, it, it's like... <laughs> If you're, in, if you're coaching the opposition getting frustrated at seeing that, then you're missing something. Yeah. Okay? I mean, that, isn't that the definition of tactically naive is if you get outmaneuvered? And you can see it. I know what's happening. I'm being outmaneuvered by the... But I'm not going to do it either. That's just stupid. <laughs> it's professional sport, I guess, isn't it? I mean, it is what the difference between amateur and professional sport is. You right, so why are New Zealand the only people playing professional sport and all the rest of us are playing it like amateurs? Yeah, that's a very good question. If, you... if this is the case, like why is it? That's why I'm struggling to get my... The other thing that I find uncomfortable is, is the notion of cheating to win. Because what we're talking about now, is it cheating, yes or no? I don't want to sound like a, like a moral relativist. Whereas faking a penalty, like they did to win that penalty, that's cheating. Obviously, it, it, this. it is so, cheating. So that's where, <laughs> yeah. that's where, for me, it gets into uncomfortable ga- gamesmanship... And pushing the boundaries is different from like actually crossing the, the boundary. And that's, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I know it happens. You know, <laughs> we, we know that it happens. Our sport's running and cycling and in cycling especially. I mean, if you could put a Ferrari engine in your bicycle, those guys would do it. But, the, but in... Martel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it has helped a few. 
the but so it's human nature to like look for little advantages but it's it's another thing to just say like we'll do by any means necessary because when i hear by any means necessary i'm thinking doping i'm thinking i mean you know yes, to what you extent, know where this goes to what extent do you push the line yeah. Yeah. well i mean going going back to that point i mean i think that that this is now a professional sport i think it's intensified under professionalism, um, as the preparation for, for a match has undoubtedly uh, intensified. But I don't think anybody should be surprised by this. I mean, look at soccer, professional soccer. There's players taking dives when they've mm -hmm. never been touched, yeah. sometimes getting a player sent off deliberately because of it. This is nothing new in other forms of professional sport. That's so true. why would rugby be sacrosanct from, no, from those and there is, And you're right. I mean, there is this perception among rugby people that their sport is somehow different because of its, uh, its honour and integrity and so forth. But I think in the professional era, that stuff... What's the question about gentlemen and soccer and gentlemen and rugby and gentlemen? Soccer's a gentleman's game played by hooligans and rugby's a hooligans game played by gentlemen or something like that. <laughs> That's, I've probably, right. That's right. I've probably messed that up. No, no, but, it's but true. I, had, I was going to ask you something related to that now. Oh, the other area where New Zealand's been accused of sort of bending the rules is in its recruitment of Pacific Islanders. What was your experience discussing it with people there you know the issue being for those who are not aware is that they pretty aggressively go into the islands Samoa, Fiji, Tonga and they bring in young players and they catch them by which I mean they, they secure them and nationalize them as early as possible so that they can only play for the All Blacks. Yeah it's happened I mean it, it undoubtedly it's been a big factor I mean many would say it's been a big factor in what they've achieved um some of those people they brought over, and it started in the late 80s. Sir Brian Williams said to me, I've got to admit at times, it was totally out of control. He said, particularly at his club, Ponsonby, which became a haven for these guys from the islands. They would join, and uh, Rico Ioani, of course, plays for Ponsonby. It's his club, and so, so does his brother. Um, so the point I have about it, and I've discussed this in the book, is that, to me, world rugby in those times could never stop players' ambitions. You can't put a cap on players being ambitious and saying, well, I'm playing in Tonga, but I reckon I'm good enough to go to New Zealand and play for the All Blacks and get a hell of a contract that will benefit me, my family and everybody else that I know. So you can't stop ambition. But what you could have done, I think World Rugby was remiss in this, was to say, OK, if you're going and taking kids of 18 that have come through the system, been honed, to the verge of being fantastic rugby players, you've got to pay some recompense. Now, whether that would have been enough to stop most players, I doubt. But what it would have done was given Fiji, Samoa and Tonga the opportunity to build something there, academies. The thing they are crassly short of is finance, and they still are to this day. And it's appalling that, well, nations around the world, and England are as guilty of this as anybody. I mean, when I last checked, the Vunipolas were not an old traditional English family from Hampshire, you know, and so on and so on. Yeah. Faletau of Wales, and every country in the world has taken these guys if yeah, it suited um, them. Yeah, South Africa's provided a few <clears throat> of its own. But you're right, France has got now such an influence in Fiji in particular that I think they actually have academies there. Well, Clermont so Ferrand, the club have, 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 got a, have got an academy there. Yeah, mm. you're right. And Which so, is unbelievable. Yeah. So that anybody good, they're just taking a 16, right, come over to... So actually, <laughs> actually, having begun this, like slagging off New Zealand, it's actually <laughs> the whole world 
has gone. We'll get back to the positive stuff shortly. So, so when you talk when you talk about the physiologically most gifted rugby players potentially in the world, the the real gold mine is not New Zealand. It's just off the coast of New Zealand. It's yes. it's those islands. That's yes. that's where you've got overrepresentation. And New Zealand, I suppose, by virtue of geography, why would they not have many of them playing? But when you look when you look how many are playing in England and France, it's actually even more more alarming. So. So, okay, so, so perhaps they're the best rugby players in the world and not the New Zealanders. <laughs> well, Whoa. you, you look at the role and yeah. the contribution the, the Ireland players yeah. have made, as, as Ross says, around the world. It's phenomenal. Mm. Quite You've phenomenal. You've dedicated a whole chapter to that in the book, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because it's a crucial f- factor in this story. Is there business in the islands about that? Is it, is a, is it yeah. controversial? It's controversial. Um, bitterness, I don't know that you'd, I could use that word because... There's such a, a great people mm. who always try to look on the positive side. But I sat down and talked with Waisaki Naholo about it at some length, and he said, man, it's very tough when you're, you're playing with a guy you see is really good and you're enjoying your rugby, suddenly next week he's gone because yeah. some Auckland school has flown over there, picked the kid out and said, right, come with us. And he said, Where we know that every time that happens we are weaker as a rugby nation. And that is yeah. a problem. So, so just a couple of things. Tonga, for instance, Fiji is the wealthiest of those nations, rugby-wise, resource-wise. Tonga is so poor that <laughs> their rugby, the Tongan Rugby unit, the Union, or whatever it was called, was basically run out of a shipping container. It was one of these converted containers. And there are many Tongans in the States, because when I was in the Las Vegas Sevens, they would have like a lot of support and so on, you know, them and Samoa. One of Tonga's biggest contributions to its GDP is rugby players overseas sending money back in. So in actual fact, these individuals on those islands have benefited enormously, so they wouldn't be bitter. Mm. But as a, as a general global whole, Tongan rugby, Fijian rugby, Samoan rugby would probably feel a little bit like they've been plundered without compensation, you know. So that's where, and that's where there's a challenge because for and we can have in our, in our World Cup later this year, 2019, you could go back four World Cups. Fiji, Samoa, Tonga have always been the countries next in line, but they've never quite got over the line. Mm. And that's, that's because of structural failings on the part of the rest of the rugby world, which I hope will be fixed in future. I'm yeah. not, not going to labour the point, but right at the start of our podcast today, I talked about the physiological uh, benefits of having those islanders there. I mean, what you're saying is those, those physiological benefits, those islanders are physiologically uh, superior in many ways as rugby players. I mean, they're, well, they're they, fan- they're they are tall, strong guys. They're fantastic yeah. natural athletes, aren't they? Really? I think mean, pretty much whatever they did would, would make a mark in any yeah. sport. Yeah, I've, they are I've, dynamic. I mean, I, I stood at the side of the field for two years watching sevens and the sides of three Fijians charging down the... Yeah, it's, it's like a racehorse who's... And long legs, holding the ball in one hand like it's a tennis ball, okay. flicking it behind his back. The next guy bends down, picks it up off his ankles. So it's agility, fitness, speed, power. It's unbelievable athletes. I can't believe, having watched them, that there aren't more of them in the NBA, in the NFL and so forth. But that's just that's because you can't just <laughs> drop into a new sport. But they are incredible athletes. I don't know whether they would have the depth necessary to produce a top 23 to be world class all the time, but they are some of the best rugby players in the world of Fiji and Samoa. The the irony out of all this is that the nation that is most alarmed by 
the current situation they confront is New Zealand in terms of meaningful opposition. And they are now saying we need to put something into the islands and try to create a Pacific team. But they've done this in the past. And the temptation to denude those island nations by taking the best players has never been resisted. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, uh, that cake looks fantastic. I'm going to take it and then say, we'll leave it in the window for somebody else to look at. It doesn't work like that. But they are seriously concerned that the Super Rugby now... They don't see many teams capable of challenging the best of New Zealand sides, like the Crusaders, and they're worried sick that the All Blacks aren't going to have opposition of sufficient quality from the Southern Hemisphere. And the Australian sides in Super Rugby, I can't remember the exact figure, but when I was down there, it was something like the last 36 matches Australian Super Rugby teams have played against New Zealand yeah. teams. They've won about three Co- or something. A couple of weeks ago, the Rebels beat... The Highlanders of the Blues, first time in two or three seasons that yeah. an Australian side had beaten a New Zealand yeah. side. Well, it's I mean, unbelievably asymmetrical, and it's it's one of the biggest commercial threats to Southern Hemisphere rugby. Very much so. And that's why you watch games, and there's these, got these 50,000-seat stadiums and 10,000 people in them. Whereas in the North, you have the Six Nations, and every single game could be won by either side, okay, with the exception of when you're playing Italy and this year France. But every single other game is 50-50 at kickoff, and it's, that's, that's what comp- in New Zealand's dominance is actually hurting Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. I guess also to some extent in, in Australia you've got all different kinds of football. You've got footy and you, 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 oh, yeah, you're yeah, leading yeah. players Australia's... in that space as well, whereas in New Zealand, I mean, it's rugby and rugby and maybe a bit of cricket. That, that's it. There's no, there's no soccer, there's a bit of basketball, but there's nothing else... That's the sport, and it's the number one sport by a long way. Yeah, and it is, and one of the reasons, one of the main reasons for that is the geographical isolation. I mean, you can't sit up in the evening in New Zealand and watch a live match between Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester United because of the time difference. It's in the middle of the night. So football never attains that following that rugby's always had and always kept, and I guess always will. I I think it's pretty hard to see it ever seriously diminishing. Yeah, and then and then like you say, in Australia, union is the, the union's only like the third most popular form of rugby. <laughs> so you're bleeding players out of disciplines. Yeah. yeah, and uh, so so they can't afford any inefficiencies. But the problem is they've got many because you know, ten, fifteen years ago, when they had that World Cup winning, it's longer than that now. It's twenty years ago when they had that World Cup winning team and they were the dominant nation. Their their system worked perfectly. Now it's got five cracks and they can only afford one. And so that's why they, although that said, they seem to be on the upswing again. So we'll see how we go later in the year. Final word, Peter, um, looking towards the World Cup this year, um, based on your book, are the All Blacks just going to get better and better? Is anybody going to catch them? Are there any cracks you know, that they are showing? Um, are, they, are they the form team? No, look, I think in the, in, in, since I wrote it um, you know, in, in last year, in uh, 2018, I think that there has been a subtle and slight change. I think certain countries have closed the gap on New Zealand. I think the All Blacks are not quite as overwhelmingly dominant as they were for for a variety of reasons. But to me, the key and most fascinating part of the whole World Cup will be this. I think there are probably three or four countries who could, on a given day, knock over the New Zealanders. I think Wales certainly could, England certainly could, Ireland possibly, and possibly South Africa. I mean, 
South Africa won in Wellington last year. If they don't believe now that they can topple them, they shouldn't bother going to Tokyo yeah. because you have to believe if you've knocked them over in their own backyard, you've got a decent chance of doing it. Sure, you've got to get everything right on the day. That assumes that. But I believe those four countries are capable of knocking over the All Blacks. But, and this is the big but, that doesn't mean that any of them necessarily can say, right, well, we've, if we knock over New Zealand, we've won the World Cup. Because they're as vulnerable. Wales could knock over England. England could knock over South Africa. South Africa could lose to Ireland. So I think it's fascinating the way it's evolving, and it could just be one of the most fascinating World Cups yet. Yeah, open. Plus. Yeah. 2011, they were, they were at home, so they were the big favourites, and they nearly, they nearly messed it up. <laughs> They had, they had some bad injuries. By the time they won that final, I think their fourth choice fly-off kicked the winning points. So, okay, they got over the line. Then the monkey was off the back. 2015, they were unbelievably good. And then, and then you'd have thought, after 2015, they lost Carter, they lost Smith, they lost Nanu. Okay, they'll rebuild. But they didn't. They stayed there, and they got even, if anything, better. But I think by 2017, the British and Irish Lions went to New Zealand and drew that series, beat them, and drew the final game. And they showed how you stop New Zealand from playing. I think teams have worked out how you prevent New Zealand from scoring. I don't know if they've got to the point yet of dominating them, but they've certainly suffocated them. And then we saw England do it to them. We saw South Africa do it to them. Uh, we saw Ireland beat them last year, and always in a similar manner. And so I think there's now a template for how you play against them. And whether New Zealand can figure out how to solve that template will determine whether they dominate this World Cup. If they can't, then, then I agree with Peter. There's four teams who could win it, and it'll come down, I think, to who has the fewest significant injuries. Because in order to win the tournament, you have to win three very tough matches inside 14 days. Quarterfinal, semi-final. And you're going to lose three players. So the question is, who do you lose? If England lost Alan Wynne-Jones... Uh, sorry, if Wales lose Alan Wynne-Jones... Uh, Jonathan Davis John, Jonathan Davis to organise the defence and potentially Ken Owens at hooker game over yeah. if England lost Farrell Itoja and Vunapola done mm. I think New Zealand can absorb more injuries than most teams but if they absorb injuries and others don't that other team wins so I think it's super open but I'd still bet on New Zealand over everyone else and then us if we can beat New Zealand in game one and get Scotland in a quarter then when you say us, we mean the Springboks. The, the Springboks, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we could beat New Zealand in our opening game, then that opens the tournament up. If we can't, we have to go Ireland, Wales, England, Australia, New Zealand. That's that's very difficult. Peter, who are you, support, who are you supporting? Those I'm not sure I particularly support any one country. I've got to the stage, to be honest, in life where I just want to see the best team win, playing the best rugby and whatever that, whoever it is, I mean, if, if it's Samoa, good luck to them. <laughs> I, I just think that the, this, the game needs to see a great World Cup in terms of what is produced on the field. And I'm slightly worried that Wales have had so much success with a game based rigidly on defence, because I don't think, I hope that won't be enough to win a World Cup. I think if Wales go there and just defend as though it's the Alamo, I think it'll be a, a pretty dark day for world rugby. I, oh, I would yeah. much prefer to see a country, whoever it is, and I don't, because I'm English, it doesn't mean just them. If South Africa go and have a real crack and really play some great stuff, good luck. 
New Zealand the same, anybody at all. But the game needs to be producing a fabulous spectacle at this World Cup. I think it can, mm. as long as the mentality is there. Yeah, the, the, the problem is, you know, in 2007 when we won, the lawmakers changed a lot of laws after that because the way we won that was ugly. Mm. That was about... And then I remember it, it was Jake White's philosophy was like, I'm better off without the ball. So you have it. We'd kick you the ball. We'd play it in your half of the field. We'd get one interception a match and we'd get one turnover and score and kick four penalties. And we'd beat you 21-9 or 21-12 every single game. It was so dull. It's like watching sumo wrestling. So I hope that that's not the case. But that seems to be the way it's gone because it's much easier to defend than it is to tackle. Yes, it is. It is. You've got to be really, really innovative and creative to, to attack yeah. and to score when you need to. Because, as I said earlier, you don't get that many chances now going forward. You've got to take them. And that is an area, I think, where New Zealand can still excel. Mm. They can execute better than most. I suppose yeah. when you're down to quarters and semis and finals, it's all about not making, making the least amount of mistakes. That's what's going to give you the win. It is, and it's yeah. human nature. I mean, look at when, you know, as Ross said earlier, when, when New Zealand won in 2011 at home, they just about got home 8-7, but then they were riddled with nerves and expectations. Yeah, I mean, and that, could have, that should have been a French win. Yeah. France should have won that match. Yeah, yeah I mean, we beat uh, New Zealand on a drop goal extra time. What was the final call? 15-12-95? And 99 was a bit of a blowout because it was France, Australia... The 203 was super tight when England won that in extra time. 207 was super tight. 2011 was super The final is going to be, you know, you can, you'll be able to count the score on your hands. Yes, yeah. on one hand probably. Well, yeah. I hope not. <laughs> Almost. 3-0. Yeah. But it, no, it could be that. It could be that way. Yeah. Peter Bills, thank you very much for joining us. It's been wonderful having you on our podcast today. You're um, welcome. My pleasure. Enjoy the author it. of The Jersey, it's available from uh, um, Pan McMillan, and it's everywhere. I had a look at it. It's on Amazon. You can get it pretty much anywhere in the world. It's a fantastic body of work. How many pages is it, actually? It's, it's a lot. It's 300 and... Including the bibliography, 368 pages. Yeah, I don't know, I fell asleep after the first 10. <laughs> it's even got pictures in, inside for people who don't read properly, but it really is a fascinating book. If you're interested in rugby or the tactics of rugby or the passion of New Zealand rugby, and not just about New Zealand, about rugby in general, it's a wonderful read. So, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. And, Thank you. Uh, safe travels. I know you're heading back home, to, uh, I think, tomorrow. Yep, that's right. And we'll have to see you back in South Africa. Maybe we can chat to you when the World Cup's on and have some more discussions. Be my pleasure. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 